Well, good morning. We want to welcome you here this morning, you that are joining us in person and those that are joining us uh, via stream. And I just want to mention that the next three nights we're going to do prayer and fasting, and it will be streamed. Uh, I know that some of you, uh, when you're here, you go, well, it feels interruptive, but we've got a little uh, additional thing we're going to do over the three nights. We're going to allow you to text your prayer requests in if you're streaming, also even if you're here, and we'll give you a number in the next three days so that you can actually, we want to make it as interactive as possible. I'm going to have a stand this morning as we uh, go to the Lord in prayer. What an exciting exciting day in the church calendar, Easter Sunday. But for me, every Sunday is exciting. I, I love coming to church. I love being with God's people. I love us uh, when we get together and we just worship the name of the Lord and we hear God's word and we allow God's spirit to speak into our lives. So Father, I pray today that uh, even the needs that are represented, we have been praying this morning that you would confirm your word with signs following I ask, Lord, that you'd open our hearts, those that are walking in woundedness, brokenness, those that are dealing with physical illnesses, Lord, I pray that you would be touching us today, touching our bodies, our sick bodies, bringing it to health, touching our emotions, Lord, that are maybe fragmented, maybe there's grief, anger, brokenness, whatever it is that's inside of us, Lord, that you are in our midst. And I ask today that you'd come by and minister to every heart, those that are listening in, that they would sense your divine presence in a very powerful way. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Now, how many recognize that there's probably nothing more painful than the loss of a child? And Becky Greer actually lost a number of her children grieving over their loss. And she shares the story that Prior to that experience, it was a Mother's Day and her little nine-year-old Cammie came along and bought her a beautiful gazer, uh, uh, stargazer lily for Mother's Day. And she said to her mom, when the blooms die, plant it outside, mom. How many know kids can be pretty persistent? She said, that's exactly what the lady at the floor said to do and it'll come back next year. So, you know, please do it, mom. Well, Eventually, she said, I, I just had a hard time believing that this plant would, you know, come back to life again. And so uh, after it died, of course, her daughter kept telling her, Mom, got to plant this plant. You got to plant this plant. How many know kids can be persistent? And so she eventually, they went outside together. They planted the plant in the backyard. Winter came. Of course, the lily's dead. And that winter, Cammie and two of her brothers passed away. It was a very devastating time in uh, Becky's life. The following spring, when the lily sprouted and grew to produce 27 fragrant pink blooms, she said, it was un inexplainable. All of a sudden, I had this inexpressible joy flood my heart. Joy in my darkness. How can that be? Without my children, I believed I would never feel joy or happiness again. How many know God can resurrect even those things which we believe cannot be resurrected? You know, emotions. We, we just can't believe that God can turn our broken places into something beautiful. I love what Isaiah says. He makes beauty. I mean, he brings ash, a beauty out of ashes. God has an ability to do incredible stuff. God, um, basically, we, we recognize in our lives that, that death is a, is a predator to humanity. It's actually our enemy. I think we need to understand that. It's not our ally, and we all try to avoid it. 
and we try to skirt it, but we know it's one of those things that eventually will catch up to each and every one of us unless Jesus comes back and takes us uh, to be with him. So how can we have hope in the times of our greatest grief? Now, I know I've been kind of focusing in on this in the last two messages, but I believe that, you know, sometimes we've got to reinforce these ideas in our mind. We really grasp it. How can we keep going when we feel most like giving up? Isn't that a great question? Because I think sometimes in life when we, our lives are broken, shattered, death is intruded, we just feel like we want to give up. We just kind of want to give in. We just want to stop. And, and the world around us is continuing, but we feel like our, our lives have shut down. And we can't understand how people can keep living life because we're in such pain in our own lives. So when life's darkest hours can only be understood, I think, from people who have been there, who have experienced it. But the most powerful truths of God are often given to us in a narrative. They're given to us in story. They're given to us in life experiences. And I love the fact that, you know, Christianity isn't just a bunch of, you know, do this, don't do that kind of stuff. It's actually, you know, the Bible is primarily narrative. And I believe that we identify with story. We can connect with story. In the midst of those stories, we learn amazing things about life. We begin to identify with the characters in the story. And I believe God wants to communicate to us the greatest truths about life and death and probably the greatest story that, that really releases and explains it to us is actually the story of Jesus himself who came to earth in order to die as a substitute for our sins and he came to conquer our greatest enemy, which is death itself. And Easter Sunday is a celebration of that great victory because after being crucified on Good Friday, the Bible says, you know, that's part of one day, it's Friday. He laid in a tomb all day Saturday and on Sunday morning he came back to life again. What a powerful, powerful message. And we're gonna zero in on that this morning. You know, the Sunday after crucifixion Friday is really the exclamation point of our faith. You know, that's why I say this is, this is greater than Christmas for the Christian. Because Christian is the introduction, the birth of God in our world as a, as a man. That's, that's a great, it's called the incarnation. But Easter Sunday is actually, you know, the triumphal moment. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, what he said is, I've done what I've come to do, but now God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are are implemented in activating the resurrection of the Son of God, and Jesus comes back to life, and that's powerful. This is probably, I would say, not probably, it is the most glorious message that has ever been told, Jesus conquering death. You know, it's always fascinating to me when I hear people say to me, they must be in a better place, you know, or people are in a better place. And I go, the very fact that people make those statements suggests to me that what they're saying is there's, there's life beyond this life. But how do we know that? How can we have that assurance that we're in a better place? How can we have the assurance that there is life after death? It's a great question, you know, and our culture has been influenced, let's face it, by uh, Judeo-Christian ethics for, you know, a long time. Our, our nation's over, like, what, 150 some odd years old. We've been influenced by the gospel message. And, but we're, you know, it's, it's kind of like we've got the, the little inklings of it now because we've moved away from it as a culture. I don't know if you realize this, but Canada, Canadians, Patty was just sharing with me, and I knew that, you know, we were actually more church than even the Americans were. Canada was the most Christian nation on earth. 
back in the 1950s. Isn't that an amazing statement? But you'd look at it today and you'd go, that's not the case. Most people have turned their backs on God. Most of us have moved towards a very secular, humanistic approach to life where God is absent. He's in the rearview mirror. He's not even being paid attention to. And now we're beginning to experience the results of living a life apart from God. And it's really a life without hope. It's because the Bible says that when, there is, when, you're, when you're walking in darkness, you have no light. You're without hope. You're without God in this world. It's tragic. And so many people today are walking around in brokenness and in pain and in sorrow and confusion and darkness. There's no sense. Life doesn't even seem to make sense. We can't make heads nor tails of what's happening around us. But as we look at the story today, I believe that we're going to have uh, a sense of the tremendous hope that we find in this wonderful message of the good news of Jesus Christ. I think once we understand this, uh, well, once we understand Christ's victory over death, he can promise us life. He can promise us eternal life. I believe our culture is espousing death. The Christian message is espousing life. We're on a different page. I actually like this page because this is a hope-filled page. It's not denying reality. We're going to talk about that. It's actually understanding and embracing the true reality and experiencing the hope that transcends the brokenness in our world today. A lot of times we, uh, you know, as, as, as a, you know, we, we need, I think, to embrace God's assurances in these hours of great darkness, in the hour when death has robbed us of our greatest loves. And that happens in all of our lives. There is hope beyond the grave. You know, when you're young, you think you'll live forever. Isn't that true? You don't think about it. And yet we have no guarantees of what time in the journey of life that you and I will be summoned, that this is the extent of our life. There's an appointed day, the Bible says. Death is something that our culture tries to ignore or avoid. You know, we try not to think about it, but it comes to each of us in one way or another. And it's usually an intruder. It's unwanted. None of us want to see it. None of us want to be around it. We don't want to experience it. We, we feel pain when it strikes close to home in our lives. And many times we, we don't want to deal with it because it reminds us of our own mortality, that you and I are going to experience death. It's a challenge to us. And a lot of people, they don't want to go to a funeral. They don't want to be here around it because they're afraid of it. Death is actually a reality. And when it strikes, you know, we, we look for support. I think that's one of the values of a funeral service because others come alongside and support. And we need that support during a time of great loss. Uh, but the real issue is that when we really experience God's life, it prepares us for death. And unless we're prepared to die we will never be prepared to live. In other words, unless we've settled that issue in our soul, then we can face life without fear. We can face life with courage. We can face life with hope. We know death itself does not stop us in our tracks. You know, it, it allows us to continue forward in our lives. Uh, our response to the fact of who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf actually addresses this significant issue in, our, in, our, in the human page. It gives us confidence to face our own mortality. It cheers us with the assurance that death is not a permanent separation from those that we love. If we know that they have made a commitment to Christ, it's amazing what starts happening. You know, as you, as you move along during life, the older you get, the more people, you know, start passing on that you know. And, you know, eventually when I, and I'm, 
I'm not that old, but I can tell you what I've noticed. People that are a lot older than me, eventually they're, they're at a point where they're saying, you know what? I really want to go to heaven now, pastor. That's the kind of conversation they have with them because they said, everybody I know is already there. You know, like all my friends have gone before me. There's like, you know, it's getting a little lonely down here. There's got a lot of people I'm looking forward to being reunited with. And by the way, you know, as you get older, sometimes, you know, we, we have challenges in our physical body. And there's things that God allows to have happen to wean us from this planet so that we want to be with our Lord and with those that we love. To know that death is not the final end. You know, a lot of people, that's what they believe. You know, once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. There's not a lot of hope in that, is there? You know, that's why Paul says, if as Christians, if Christ had not been raised from the dead, our faith is in vain and we're almost miserable. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, mean, that's the philosophy of a lot of people today because that's all they have to look forward to. But we know there's something greater than that. The Christian hope is not based on a false hope. See, we're not just, this is not just pie in the sky and we got our head in the sand. no. This is based on a historical reality. And it's always beautiful when we travel, like some of us had the privilege of going to Israel, and you see the places where Jesus did the variety of miracles that it's talking about in the scriptures, and you read about these things, you begin to connect the dots and say, wow, this was actually related in a piece of geography, and it's related as a piece of history. People know that Jesus lived, even though some try to deny it. But the reality is, Our world has been shaped by his life. One of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection is John. It's the gospel we're going to look at today. In John chapter 20, we're going to look at uh, two compelling evidence that Jesus is alive from the dead. And I, I want to just zero in. The first one is not as strong as the second one, but it is an evidence. It's a compelling evidence to the people who lived at that moment. And then we're going to talk about uh, some of the struggles that they had, actually. Do you realize that all of the other religions in the world, their founders never proclaimed that they would come back from the dead? It's interesting. Jesus is the only one. And Jesus actually is addressing, I believe, the greatest issue in humanity. He's addressing our greatest fear, which is death. Um, Jesus, we're going to find out, not only dies on the cross, but because of all the things he said and did, his adversaries are so concerned about the fact that Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, they actually secured Roman soldiers to set a seal over the tomb in order for no one to take that body. And we're going to find that out in the story here. So let's take a look in John chapter 20. And I think most of us need to realize that the first followers of Jesus we're not anticipating what happened on the first Easter Sunday, okay? We, we have to get this in our minds. Now remember, if you were here last Sunday, I talked about the resurrection of Lazarus. Remember that story? And Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days. And I, told, and I said to you that that was to help prepare his own disciples for his upcoming death and resurrection. Jesus knew he was gonna die. Jesus knew he was gonna be raised from the dead. He wanted to prepare them for that. But how many know, you know, They were like overwhelmed by that miracle. It actually was the crystallizing moment that made people decide to kill him. His adversary said, listen, if he keeps doing this kind of stuff, everyone's gonna believe in him. So let's get rid of Jesus and let's get rid of Lazarus because he's evidence that, you know, he got, came back from, from life. And like I shared last Sunday, I said, you can imagine going to a funeral service 
And after burying the person and then showing up four days later and telling them to come out of the grave, I mean, that, that, that literally transformed the landscape. That went to the Jerusalem Gazette, I said last week. That really had an impact. But now, a little over a week later, or just about that time, Jesus has now been crucified, and everything that Jesus had said at that moment seemed to create in the minds and hearts of the people a deep sense of, you know, brokenness and grief. Their dreams were shattered. How many know that death has a way of destroying things? And so their anticipation that Jesus was the Messiah and everything that they had understood about the Messiah since they were little children was actually shattered in that moment. Because in their minds, they, they saw the, the coming of, of God's Messiah as overthrowing Rome. And so here Jesus is crucified by Rome. It just seemed like the very opposite had happened. And so they felt, in a sense, I, I can imagine there was, it must have been a sense of you know, betrayal to the dream. But on their side of the equation, you know, even though Jesus had told them that he was gonna rise again, do you know when you and I fail deeply, we don't, folk, we don't, we don't walk around going, you know, like, yeah, if Jesus was still alive, I could believe anything. But when Jesus is dead, and you have already betrayed him and denied him, and you are living in sin and shame and guilt, how many know it's pretty hard to believe that Jesus is gonna come alive again? I mean, he's the one where everything happens. He's the one that makes it happen. Now he's dead. Now what? And so these guys are in a terrible headspace. And they're, they're experiencing grief. And if you've ever loved someone and you've lost them, there's such, you know, you're not even rational sometimes. You're, you're living in denial at some moments. You're living in anger at some moments. You're grieving. Grief you know, moves your emotions all over the map. These guys were struggling. These ladies were struggling with grief. We need to understand the context of where they were emotionally. They were stunned. They were shattered. The biblical text tells us that certain women now were deciding, okay, we, we've seen where the tomb is. We're going to go back. We can't do it on the, the, the Saturday because that's the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. So they, they, they said, we'll go on the first day of the week, which was a Sunday, and we'll go help prepare his body for burial. Now they had done a hastily, had hastily went about preparing his body earlier, Nicodemus, Josephus, but they knew that it wasn't done properly and completely. So they were coming to do that. And we pick up the story in John 20. He says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now in other gospels, we read that it was actually a number of women that went. Okay, number one. But John is focusing in on Mary, and she's going to be one of his main characters in the story. So they're going together, and the biggest thought in their mind is, who's going to move the stone? And they, they hadn't realized that the Romans had set a guard over it, put a seal on it. So they're dealing with these kind of what I call the practical issues, but they've, they haven't been able to sort it out in their mind what they're going to do. So she came running to Simon Peter. Now listen, the tomb has been, stone is removed, and she runs to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. We know that John's writing the gospel, so it's John. He's this is how he describes himself. That's a pretty nice thing. Well, that's the one that Jesus loved, you know, right? You know, and he said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Now, with that statement, how many understand that Mary's not saying, he's risen. 
No, what she's saying is somebody's relocated the body. How many get that picture? That's where she's at in her head. She's not saying that Jesus is alive. She's basically saying somebody took the body. <coughs> Excuse me. Somebody took the body. So the assumption on Mary's part is that someone's stolen it. And you can hear the anguish in her voice and mind that this body's been removed. So she's, as I've already said, is just a number of the women. So, so why now, the question in my mind comes, is why is the fact that Jesus reveals himself to Mary first? Because we're going to find out she actually comes back to the tomb by herself, probably trailing the other two disciples, because we're going to find out they come to the tomb. And we know from Scripture that Mary, you know, when you think about it, she's probably the least credible of all the witnesses. Because she's the girl that, you know, the Bible said she had seven demons inside of her. Jesus cast out these demons. So she was demonized. And how many know that when people are demonized, they, have, they actually, you know, they can live a relatively normal life, but they also do very bizarre things. So her credibility probably wasn't the highest of all the people Jesus could have said, hey, I'm alive, Right? They go, what's going on with this girl? I mean, you know, maybe this, this uh, situation of grief has triggered all kinds of bad stuff in her life. Who knows? And yet Jesus appeared to her right off the bat. And I, I, I believe when I think about it is that Mary, once she was set free, she was totally devoted to Christ. And there's something about devotion that God responds to. You know, God always responds to faith. And she was a person who I believe, you know, really deep down inside expressed a deep love and devotion to Jesus. She did, because of what God had delivered her from, what Christ had delivered her from. So when we come solely to worship him, to serve him, I believe Jesus surprises us and blesses us beyond anything that we could ever imagine. A lot of times, you know, we're taught we need to come with expectation. We need to come in faith. I, yes, that's true. But how about just coming with saying, Lord, I just come, I have no agenda, no expectation, I'm just here to serve you, I'm just here to worship you, I'm just here to bless you. And many times when we come with that attitude, God just kind of surprises us. And he does something beautiful in our lives. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. Because we're living in a very self-focused generation. How many say that's true? And so when you have people who are selfless, those are the people that many times people take advantage of, and yet God brings great blessing in their life, and we see that. There's something delightful and powerful, I believe, when we come to bless and worship and to give and to serve without any expectation on our part to receive anything, but God is a great giver. Then we see Peter and John's response to the empty tomb, and I believe it was significant. When Mary first came to tell them that, they just immediately took off running. It says in verse 3, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. Now, you get the picture here. Mary probably comes running, breathlessly screaming to the disciples in the upper room. The body is missing. Peter and John immediately get up, and they start running towards the tomb. Of course, John's telling the story. He adds a little commentary here. Uh, it says here, uh, back in verse 4, and the other disciple outran Peter. <laughs> There's a little bit of humanness here, right? In other words, I got there first. You know, Peter, Peter is, he got there, but he did not outrun me. I mean, I got there ahead of him. I, I love that. It just, it just creates a sense of human dynamic to the story. 
It says he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. You know, John's a very reflective personality. Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived, and if you know anything about Simon's character, Simon Peter's character, he's what I would call, he's the man in charge. Move out of the way here. I gotta take a look at this. He doesn't stop. He goes right inside the tomb, and he sees the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. <coughs> Excuse me. It's interesting. If you're a grave robber, you probably just pick up the body and take it. But now, it's interesting that the linen cloth around the head has been neatly folded. And the, 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 the grave cloth that's been surrounding the body is lying there in such a way that it says the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and he believed. What did he, what did he see? Well, Leon Morris says, in general, it's true that the early Christians did not believe in the resurrection of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Because they could not find the dead body. You want to just get me that water bottle there, Andrea? Would you mind? They believed because they, did, they found a living Christ. That's true. That's the majority of them. We're going to see that. The empty tomb didn't, wasn't really a big argument. But there is an exception. You see, when John saw the clothes, he remembered something that Jesus had said. See, Jesus had kept saying, I'm going to rise from the dead. When he saw the clothes this way, immediately he believed that Jesus was now alive. And John was that exception. He believed in the resurrection before he saw Jesus alive. Not indeed because he saw the empty tomb, <coughs> but he saw the disposition of the grave clothes suddenly made the truth clear to him. And that is powerful. He believed that Christ was now alive. Now, the enemies of Jesus, they picked up on what Jesus said. Isn't it interesting sometimes the adversaries hear things that some of us failed to hear because we don't want to hear the message. How many don't want to hear bad news? Most of us don't like hearing bad news. You know, somebody says, hey, you're going to die. That's not good news. And Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. And they don't want to hear that. But then Jesus is, in Matthew's gospel, it says this. <clears throat> the next day, on the, the one after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to the Roman government, governor, Pilate. And they said, sir, we remember that while he was still alive, now notice how they, this is very unflattering. That deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. Listen, they said, so give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. You know, I, I hear all these crazy arguments. You know, Christ, you know, the, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Come on, guys. That was weird arguments. They had a guard over the tomb. Everybody knew where it was. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. I got to ask the question, why would the disciples steal Christ's body? And then later on, all of them, except for John, who you know, died a natural death, an old age, we'll say it that way, the rest were all killed because they were proclaiming that Jesus was alive. Why would they even do that? What were they gaining from this? 
Not a lot. They, didn't, they ended up dying. So Pilate said, take a guard and go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And after the Sabbath, which is a Saturday, at dawn on the first day of the week, which was the Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So there we get the idea of there was more than one woman going there. Okay. There was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. So their big concern is who's going to move the stone? We know the Roman guards didn't move it. The disciples didn't move it. No, it was a supernatural being that came along and rolled the stone away and then sat on the stone. So that's the, uh, the text there. It says here, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white like snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Uh, how many know that if you meet an angel, you're probably going to be a little bit emotionally rattled? How many think that probably is true? You might get a little shaken up to see a supernatural being. And, you know, I've read the Bible from cover to cover many times, and every time I read about an angel showing up, people get terrified. Uh, this is not, because it's supernatural. It's outside of our realm that we're used to. It says there, while they were on, while they, they were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported the chief priests everything that had happened. So if the antagonistic crowd of unbelieving leaders knew that Jesus had foretold, it is equally true that the disciples had heard these words, but it wasn't registering the same way, right? Because in their minds, the Messiah, from their understanding of scripture, was to conquer Rome, and yet, as I've already said, Rome had seemed to have conquered Christ. They had crucified him. But Jesus had a game plan. He was actually dealing with a bigger problem. His problem wasn't Rome. See, a lot of times we think our problems are different than what they really are. Jesus was actually dealing with the ultimate problem you and I are gonna deal with. And that is the wages of our sin produces death. Jesus was dealing with death itself. He was conquering the greatest problem that we're gonna suffer. So the reality was what changed the disciples? John said, yeah, I believe that. But let's take a look. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, not only to these 12, up to 500 at one time saw Jesus, what we call his post-resurrection appearances. He started showing up and revealing himself to a whole number of people that were believers. And after many convincing proofs that he was alive, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Jesus is now appearing to them, not only in the upper room in Jerusalem, but he eventually appears to them having breakfast at the Sea of Galilee. He's showing up at different places. And so we know that it's not like, you know, <laughs> there's, there's such a dynamic reality here when you have you know, different people seeing him at different spots. He's walking with two men on the road to Emmaus and talking to them in Luke's gospel. So we see a whole number of uh, incidences. But John here tells us that he himself, when he saw the linen clothes, did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. What that means is he understood because Jesus had said it, but later on in Luke's gospel, he's gonna actually teach his disciples, let me explain to you the Old Testament and show you that the Messiah had to die 
and rise from the dead. He actually used the scriptures to teach it. And when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he's using the Old Testament to explain to the people, the Jewish people that knew the Bible, you know, he explained to them from scripture that the Messiah had to die and rise from the dead. And he uses those texts. But let me move on to the second evidence. Because the first one, you know, I call them compelling. It was compelling in some way, but as we can see, these guys were in such a state of shock. They would have never ran around preaching the gospel if that was all there was to it. The, the real reason why they were convinced that Jesus was alive was because they saw him alive. How I many know that's pretty powerful? And he starts out by appearing to Mary. You know, in John chapter 20, it says, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Peter and John went back to the upper room. Now Mary, now that tells me she must have followed from a distance. They were running. She, she's probably following behind them to see what's going to happen. She stopped outside the tomb and she was crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now I'm going to make a, a supposition here. I can't prove it. I wonder if the angels weren't there the whole time. But now she sees them. Why do I say that? Because right now, if God could open up our spiritual eyes in this room, you'd be shocked. There's actually a whole bunch of angels here. Did you know that? You say, why do you, why do you say that, Pastor? Because the scriptures teach that God sends uh, his ministering spirits, his angels, to the heirs of salvation. That's us. There are angels in this room, and not only that, the presence of God is here right now. Jesus is in this place. You say, well, how do you know that? Because the scriptures teach us if two or three gather in his name, he's in our midst. And so I'm gonna say that right now, the reason why we don't see this is because we're looking with natural eyes. We'd, and if God opened the, our mind's understanding, we began to see in the spiritual realm, it would blow us away. It would, be, it would be very intense in this room right now. You'd be shocked at what's going on. She began to look and she could see these angels. And... She saw two of them, and so she, they were dressed in white, they were seated there, and they said to her, woman, why are you crying? That was a great question. In her mind, she's going, listen, I'm grieving the loss of my friend. That's why I'm crying. What are the angels trying to tell her? You're crying for nothing. Jesus isn't dead. You don't have to grieve. He's alive. She says to them, they've taken away my, my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. In other words, Mary is locked into the fact that his body's missing. How many see that? Okay? It's so bad that um, at, at this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? He's there, she's looking at him, but it's not computing. Why isn't it computing? Well, first of all, she's crying. First of all, she believes he's dead. She sees this person standing there and and I, I just write this so often in our pain and tragedy we feel that God's abandoned us how many have ever had those moments in your life where you felt like God's a million miles away you felt abandoned you felt like you were in darkness can I tell you that's how you feel but that's not reality because the scripture says he will never leave us nor forsake us so even though at moments in our lives emotionally mentally we feel like God isn't <coughs> It's not near us, excuse me. He is. As a matter of fact, we sing that beautiful chorus, you know, even when I, when I don't feel it, even when I don't see it, God is still here. God is still working. 
And so I want to encourage you today, you know, we can't just trust always our emotions. Our emotions sometimes can help us. We're not saying to deny our emotions. I never would argue that point, but I'm saying you can't fully trust them because emotions are all over the map. And we, a lot of times, we, some of us, we've allowed our emotions to totally guide our lives, and that's a destructive pattern. We need to say, yes, I, I, I have these emotions, and I need to address these emotions, but I don't let them become the guide of my life. I gotta let something greater than that guide me. <clears throat> He's always there. So, thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. <laughs> so we're, 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 we can see where Mary's head is at, right? <clears throat> and I think we often interpret the events in our lives incorrectly. Anybody say that's probably true? Our interpretive skills are not always dead on. We often misunderstand what people are doing far too frequently. I mean, no, that's true. How many have ever made assumptions? Anybody ever made assumptions? And you look at a situation, you think you understand what's going on, and the reality is you're totally missing the bolt. And you know, a lot of times we can, get, we can let our emotions run rampant, we can get all excited, but if we were wise, when we, when we see something, maybe it's better to ask questions. And many times I've discovered if I ask questions, what I assumed was something, I was totally wrong. And as they begin to explain to me what's happening, I go, wow. Wow, that's, I, I'd never thought of it that way. So, you know, if we're gonna be wise in our lives, sometimes we need to ask more questions and make less assumptions and, less, and get less upset about things. Because a lot of times we get upset about things that aren't even the truth. I'm gonna argue that a lot of things you and I are upset about aren't even true. How's that? But we've heard something, we've seen something, we think we understand it, but we're misinterpreting it. Mary was misinterpreting what was going on. She was locked into a certain viewpoint. She thought Jesus was dead. She assumed this guy was the gardener. She said, where's his body? Did you take it? I'm gonna go get it. Can you tell that's where she was at? But notice what happens. Jesus speaks her name, Mary. When God calls our name, everything changes in life. It's something powerful. When God finally gets through to us, when he finally penetrates all of our, you know, hang-ups and brokenness and anger and frustration and skepticism and unbelief. It's amazing what starts happening in our lives. I just write, when God calls your name, it's a call to worship. It's a call to come to him. It's a call to trust him. It's a call meant to evaporate our fears, our doubts, our disappointments, and our sins. God calls our name when we're experiencing sorrow and we're blinded to the truth. God calls our name when we're groping our way through grief and losses so real it has numbed us to the pleasures of this life. God calls our name to lead us out of our blindness so that we can see him for who he is and discover his identity. So what is Jesus to you? Have you discovered the resurrected Lord? If not, you're kind of groping through life blinded to the truth. We make all these assumptions, coming to the wrong conclusions. Like Mary, we're searching, but we're not finding. And then we come. Mary Magdalene now, she's pretty excited. She's just met Jesus. It says she went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And they're going, hysterical woman. Right? You, you, can you see it? These guys are, because it's not computing for them. How many know that, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you guys think like this way? I mean, she's running, she says, where's the body? Now she comes back and says, I've seen Jesus. 
You, you can see that they're having a problem with this conversation, right? And she told them that he had said to her these things. But not only did Jesus have to appear to Mary Magdalene, he had to show up to the 10 disciples that were remaining. Remember, well, Judas is now dead. He hung himself. Thomas is not with them. Well, what does Jesus do? He shows up, it says, on the evening of that first day of the week. So this is now Sunday night. So Sunday morning, all this is happening. Here's Sunday night. First day of the week, the disciples are together. The doors are locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus stands among them and says, peace be with you. I think it freaked them right out. <laughs> the doors were locked. He just pops in, right? They're probably thinking, is this a ghost or what? You know? And after he had said this, he showed them, hey, come over here. Look at my hands. Look at my side. The disciples now are overjoyed. They go, oh my goodness, you're alive. He said, yes, I'm alive. I've been telling you all along I was going to die and I was going to come back to life and you guys didn't get it. And the reason you didn't get it, why was it they couldn't get it? Because they were so locked into their failure. They had denied Jesus. They were so broken. All of the issues that were going on. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. That first peace that he said to them is really the ordinary greeting. If you're in Israel right now, they'll say to you, shalom. That's Hebrew for peace, shalom. He just said shalom, hi, how are you? you know? The second expression, he said peace again. But it's a communication of the peace that Christ's sacrificial brings his sacrificial death brings to the pardoned sinner. Isn't that great? Do you know what happens? When you and I have peace with God, we can have the peace of God. So many people are living with anxiety. So many people are stressing. I, I could say right now, in this room, we probably live with a lot of stress and anxiety. We're afraid of tomorrow. What's my future going to hold? Where, what's going to happen to me? How, can, how, is, how is my life going to be provided you know, what happens when I get older? How am I going to take care of myself? Who's going to take care of me? I mean, we could just go down this whole list of all these anxieties that people have. And there's a long list of them, folks. You want, I want you to hear this word. If we can have peace with God, we can have the peace of God. We can live with peace instead of anxiety. Isn't that great? You know, I have a doctorate degree. It might shock some of you. I'm going to give you a prescription. You can have, I'm going to give you the gospel. The gospel, the gospel. You know, if you receive Jesus, you will have peace. It's a wonderful peace. You can live with that peace. It doesn't mean you'll never have moments of anxiety, but there's actually uh, another prescription you can take to overcome that anxiety. And it all comes back to trusting in Christ. Well, Thomas wasn't there, okay? So he finally appears to Thomas. Thomas is having a problem. He, Thomas, you know, we could say, last week I talked about him. I said, you know, he's got a bad rap. You know, he, he said to the disciples, let's go down to Judea. If we have to die following Jesus, let's be willing to die. I called him Courageous Thomas. Today, I have to say that his character is far more complex, just like ours. In one minute, he's courageous. Now he's skeptical Thomas because he wasn't there when Jesus showed up he knows Jesus is dead and he doesn't know what these 10 guys are drinking because they're telling him, we saw Jesus. And he's going, really? 
I don't buy it. As a matter of fact, it says Thomas called Didymus one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. <clears throat> so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I'm not buying it. You guys, what you're selling, I'm not buying. I'm sorry, I'm not getting it. I just, I saw what happened to Jesus. I know they buried him. I know he's dead. Then Jesus shows up. Hello, Thomas. That freaking anybody right out. You know, poor Thomas. Jesus, the first thing he says is, hey, Thomas, come over here. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas's response was, my God, my, 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 my Lord and my God. Like, I believe, right? See, when Jesus calls our name, it's a challenge to stop doubt and start believing. Are we to believe only what we see? It's a challenge, isn't it? The time would come that neither sight nor touch would be possible, for Jesus would have completed his return to his Father beyond the range of physical senses. Yet he will still be visible to the eyes of faith. Jesus said to them, to Thomas particularly. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Now, I'm gonna say something here that's gonna help us. Because sometimes we struggle. We go, you know, these guys had an advantage. They literally saw Jesus raised from the dead, right? I'm gonna say that's pretty, pretty solid advantage. I'm gonna give you an evidence that God is alive. Here's it, here it is. When you and I open our hearts and Christ comes into our lives, I can guarantee you he's gonna change you. That's the evidence. I remember before I was a Christian, I had no interest in spiritual things. I wasn't seeking for God. I didn't wanna to go to church. I had no interest in the Bible. I had no interest in trying to please God. That, wasn't in my, that was not in my game plan. But you see, God allowed circumstances to come into my life brought me to the end of myself. I was in a place of brokenness. And fortunately, I had been exposed to the gospel on different occasions and had enough knowledge to know that, you know what, there have been moments back there where God had made himself known to me, and yet I had turned my back on God. Listen to what happened. The moment we open our hearts, you know what happens? God comes and lives inside of us. He does it by the, his Holy Spirit. And when his spirit lives inside of us, he changes us. Paul writes, for, for it is God who's working in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. I have to honestly say that the moment I surrendered my life to Christ, it changed all my desires. Now all of a sudden, I wanted to please God. I never had that before. All of a sudden now when I did the wrong thing, I felt terrible about it. Before, I, I self-justified my bad behavior. But when I received Christ and the Holy Spirit was living in me, he, I was grieved. The Spirit of God in me was now grieved and I recognized I had sinned and I knew I had to ask God to forgive me so I could be reconciled again to him, so I could begin to please him again, so I could begin to follow him and walk with him. That's a whole different way of life. Okay, how did that happen? Open your heart. It changes your life. It moves you in a whole new direction. It, now, what's, 
John is concluding the book. He says this, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. What kind of life? Eternal life. And that life begins the moment we receive Christ because Jesus in his high priestly prayer said this, now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How do you respond to the resurrection of Jesus? Deny it? Don't think about it? The religious leaders lied about it and fabricated another story so they, which they could not substantiate but that they didn't want to have to address it. You know, to decide to live independently of God is the great sin of humanity. It's done to our own demise and our own destruction. And so you and I have a choice this morning, just like the disciples did of old. Jesus is alive. What are we going to do about it? Let's stand. Amen. So while every head is bowed this morning, I want to give us an opportunity. You know, the last three weeks, I have really focused in on helping us to get to meet Jesus. You know, that's not what I preach on every single week or every single time. Some of you know that. Why am I doing that right now? Because this moment in the calendar year of the church lends itself to encouraging us to surrender our life to Jesus. It's designed to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, I could say to us, every one of us in this room, there's an hour coming when you and I will face death. It's coming. It's inevitable. Are you ready to do that? If you're ready to meet God tonight, you're in great shape. I believe if people are prepared, prepared their soul for death, they're ultimately prepared to live. But if we haven't done that, then death is going to you know, be a scourge in our life. It's something we're going to try to avoid. I want to help prepare you for that moment. So you don't have to hear these statements that people say, well, they're going to be in a better place. How can you make that statement? How do you know you're going to be in a better place? Do you know Christ? Are you going to be with him? Because that's what heaven is all about, is being with God. And hell is all about being absent from God. And so if we don't want God in this life, why would we want him in the life to come? It's real simple. The only way that that's going to change is if there's a change of heart. And you can say to yourself, you know what? I have a hard heart, or I have a rebellious heart, or I have a broken heart. I want to be honest before God. God sees our hearts. See, I would argue today and say, give him your heart. There's not one person in this room will take great loss. If you say, okay, I'm going to give my heart to you, God. I'm going to surrender my life to you, Christ. You're going to be the gainer, the big gainer. But if you don't do that, you're going to have a small heart. You're going to live with a lot of personal struggle. It's all going to depend on you. See, for me, I can go, no, it depends on you. Because I'm trusting you. I've given my heart to Christ. And what he's done with my heart over the years has expanded it. And it's not been just about me and my little world. It's been expanding as I've been going along this journey of life. It's getting bigger and bigger. My heart is incorporating more and more people. It's amazing what God's doing. He just keeps expanding it. And that's what God wants to do with you. He wants to expand you. He wants you to open your heart to him. And with every head bowed, maybe you're here this morning and say, you know what, Pastor? That's what I want. I want to be able to face death 
and not face it with fear. I want to be able to have a heart that's no longer small. I want it to begin to expand. I want to have my heart transformed and changed by God so that I become more like Jesus who gave himself for others, who began to live for a higher purpose. That's my desire this morning. Maybe I've never done this, but I'm gonna tell you what he's gonna do. He's gonna deliver you from this realm of death. He's gonna translate you, the Bible says, into his kingdom. He's gonna move you from darkness to light. He's gonna go from despair to hope. What a great element for all of us. Maybe you're here this morning and that's you. God's speaking to you. He's calling you by name. There's something happening inside of you. There's a stirring in your heart. That's because God's calling you by name. He's calling your name. He's saying, come to me. Give me your heart, and I will heal the brokenness. Give me your heart, I will remove the fear. Give me your heart, and I will give you purpose that transcends this life. I'll give you a meaning that's far deeper than anything you've ever known. And if that's you this morning, just raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you, that's what I want to do. I want to give my heart to Christ. I want to give my life to Christ this morning. And a lot of people in the first service respond, yes. Yeah, there's people responding this morning. That's good. I'm going to pray with you right now. But I'm going to tell you what I want you to do. After I pray, I want you to fill out that little card in front of you in the pew and say, listen, I prayed this morning and I gave my life to Christ. And I'll tell you why. Because being a follower of Jesus, that's what, exactly what you got to do, follow. It's not just a prayer. It's not just a decision. That's the beginning point. Disciples are learners. Disciples are followers. I want to help you as you learn and follow. Our church wants to help you to learn and follow. We're all on this journey together. We're going to help each other. So Father, I pray this morning. I pray right now as we're opening our hearts to you. I pray as we're crying out to you this morning. And there's hearts in here that are saying, Father in heaven, forgive me. I have sinned against you. I have lived a life unto myself. Really, it's been a pretty small little world. But now I'm asking you to forgive me. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against others. I've sinned against myself. Would you remove my sin? Would you forgive me today? I believe you will because you said you would. I'm confessing my need for you today. I'm, I'm giving you my heart today. I'm asking you to come and fill me with your life, your presence, your spirit right now. Fill me, Father. Fill me with your life. Change my heart. Make my heart a heart after yours. And I thank you for that. I thank you for hearing my prayer. I thank you for coming into my life. I thank you that you are now my Savior and my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave. Please fill out that card. Give it to me or one of the attendants on the way out.